to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. Father, we do desire to behold you, and we do behold you even now as we look to you from the pages of Scripture as you've revealed yourself to us, and we pray that as we behold you from your word that we would, in fact, come and worship and adore you. We ask, as we ask on a regular basis, that you'd open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word, Father. We give this before you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Colossians 4, and I'll read from verse 7. Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that's taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. One of the things that's very tempting to do whenever you see a list of names in the scripture, whether it's here or whether it's in a genealogy in the Old Testament, is come to the conclusion that we should just kind of skip over this or gloss over it because who wants to look at a whole bunch of names? Obviously, all scripture is inspired of God, and there's a reason and a purpose for every name that is in the Bible, and these in particular you'll see in a moment how important they really are for us to understand the entire book of Colossians and the work that Paul is attempting to do here. Of all the 13 letters that Paul wrote, two of them have very significant lists of people at the end of the letter. Colossians is one of them, and the book of Romans is another. In fact, turn to Romans 16 for a minute. Romans 16, I'll just read a few verses, and I'll start from verse 6. Romans 16, I'll start from verse 6. Greet my beloved Epietus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Androconus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles. They were in Christ before me. 
Greet Amplitus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Now, I'll just stop there for now. If you continued to read the whole chapter, you'd see a dozen or more other names that Paul mentions here in the book of Romans. Again, people that he knew by name. And since Romans and Colossians are the only two places that Paul had not visited, he had not seen the Romans face-to-face, he had not seen the Colossians face-to-face. Um, I, I think that because of that, he attempted to share with them many of the friends and co-workers that the Colossians didn't know either, and Paul is just joining them into this great company of believers, as he mentioned so many of these by name. However, not everybody in this final greeting is a stranger to those in Colossae. There are some who were with Paul who those in the church we know were acquainted with. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, Paul writes, Colossians, we're back at Colossians 4 now. Paul writes, And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Now we'll explain more about him in a few minutes, but it's obvious that Paul's referencing the fact that this man, Onesimus, is someone Paul knows, who also the people in the Colossian church know. And we know this by the phrase, who is one of you. Paul uses the same phrase in verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. If you recall, many, many months ago when we began the book of Colossians, that Epaphras was the one who taught them the gospel. Epaphras may have been the one that actually planted the church. But at this point, he's not in Colossae anymore. He's actually with Paul while this letter is being written in Rome. Now, we're not going to go through all the names today. We wouldn't be able to make the, the luncheon afterwards, so we're going to have to pause in the middle. But I want you to see from this text how God uses people for his work, for his glory, with different gifts, different statuses in life, and different ethnicities. In Christ, we're a body, and every person is necessary for the body to function properly, to see his kingdom go forward. And we want to see this the way Paul introduces us to so many of these various people in the chapter. And we'll start, of course, with Tychicus in verse 9. The description Paul gives him, I think, is spectacular. He says, Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your heart. Now, it would be an honor for Paul or anyone to just describe a person as a brother, as a minister, and as a servant. But when you add those adjectives before those words, it just ramps things up, doesn't it? He's not just any brother, He's a faithful brother. He's not just uh, any, any minister he, he, or any servant. He's got the adjectives of beloved, faithful, and fellow in front of all of those words about this particular man. Now, last week, we spent a lot of time, as we looked at, the, at chapter 2 through chapter, I mean, at verse 2 through verse 6, and we paid particular attention to the difference between those who are upfront proclaimers of the word and those who are more behind-the-scenes promoters of the gospel or promoters of the word. And I think this just further demonstrates it in Paul's reference to Tychicus. 
because it doesn't appear that he's an upfront speaker. It, it doesn't appear that he's going to be on the front lines proclaiming, but nonetheless, he is vital to the body of Christ and he's vital to the furtherance of the gospel because of his faithfulness and because of his service. And though Paul was an apostle, and though Paul was a church planter, and though Paul was a preacher and a teacher, and he had so many responsibilities among all the Gentile churches in particular, he views Tychicus as an integral part of the body, even though Tychicus doesn't have the same calling as Paul. Tychicus has different gifts than Paul, and Tychicus has a different function in the body of Christ than Paul. I mean, Paul's the guy up front who everybody knows, and this dear brother is behind the scenes, doing whatever needed to be done so that God's purposes could be fulfilled. And Paul does not consider him less than he is. And Paul does not consider himself above him. Paul sees him as a beloved brother, as a faithful minister, and as a fellow servant in the Lord. As a beloved brother, he has a oneness of unity, of heart and purpose and mind with Paul. Paul loved him, and they were both loved by God. As a faithful minister, he, he would be one who, who did what he was asked to do with complete dependability and total trustworthiness to do whatever God wanted to accomplish in his life. And as a fellow servant, he's giving Tychicus, he's actually giving him the same rank he has, in a sense. Because he, though Tychicus, though not an apostle, Paul still calls him a fellow servant. These two are teammates working for God and his glory and the furtherance of his kingdom. You see, when Paul wrote epistles that had to be delivered to the churches that he was writing to, he, he'd written a message that had to be delivered. And he, he couldn't just call FedEx. He, he couldn't just put it in the post post office expected to get there. He couldn't even use Pony Express or, or, or UPS. No, he couldn't do any of that. Somebody had to hand deliver these messages. Somebody had to walk across land, sail across sea, and help these letters arrive safely. And Paul didn't trust just anyone with this responsibility. Remember, this letter is painstakingly written on some sort of vellum, and, and, and you couldn't take a picture of it, and, and you couldn't fax it. This is an original copy, handwritten, that could not be replaced, and it was vital that it arrived at its destination. And the job of carrying it was so significant that the person who carried it is listed in God's Word so that for the rest of history... We know not only who wrote Colossians, but we know the one who carried the letter, and the one who carried it was this brother Tychicus. As a side note, his name is mentioned five times in the New Testament. He also carried the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. He's a trusted companion of Paul's and his life to the very end of his life. But he's not just a postman. He's not just a letter carrier. According to verse 8, what's it say about him? His additional responsibility was to tell the church, report to the church how Paul was doing there in Roman prison, and this report was designed to encourage their hearts. That's almost odd, isn't it? 
Paul is in prison, and he's anticipating that the report of what God's doing in a Roman prison is going to be an encouragement to those who hear about how he's doing, which is always a reminder, again, that all of our difficult, all of our adverse circumstances, though unpleasant and though unwanted, are still part of God's providential plan for our lives and how God works through our sufferings and our afflictions, and those themselves can actually be an encouragement to the brothers and sisters in Christ around us. The, the trip from Rome to Colossae was 1,250 miles. They had to walk across Italy, try that sometime, sail across the Adriatic Sea, walk across Greece, sail the Aegean Sea, and then continue to walk through part of Asia. And even if you were at a clip of 20 miles a day, it would take at least two months or more. Thank God for those in the body of Christ who are willing to do the hard work, willing to do the difficult work, willing to do work like this, and most of the time comes with no recognition whatsoever. In a real sense, God is demonstrating to us by just mentioning his name here, that when you think that no one sees your service for him, God sees. He sees, he remembers, and he knows your work for his glory. And even here at Grace Fellowship, if you're one of the many people behind the scenes, one of the many people that work here in the church, every time you help, God sees. He sees you set up. He sees you tear down. He sees you work in the nursery. He sees you in Sunday school whenever we start up again. He knows when you bring a meal to someone. He, he knows when you do sound and make bulletins and mow the grass and rake the leaves or help when nobody else sees. God sees you as an integral part of the body of Christ, and, and we see this by just the mention of Tychicus's name. And we're thankful for those like him in the body of Christ, who serve and labor, not up on the podium, but behind the scenes for God's glory. And Paul puts himself on equal par with this brother, Tychicus. Along with that, notice the next name mentioned is Onesimus. Onesimus shows our unity in Christ, regardless of our status in life. You may not remember, it's been a long time ago, but Onesimus was the subject matter for the book of Philemon. We preached through Philemon before we preached through Colossians. Uh, and go ahead and turn there for a minute. Philemon's hard to find. It's the little one-page book before Hebrews. The little one-page book before Hebrews. Find Hebrews and then go back one. And once you get to Philemon, I want you to start from the back. And I want to read from verse 23 because there's names mentioned in the book of Philemon that are similar to, or exactly the same names as written to Colossae. Philemon, verse 23. Paul writes, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Now, since this list is identical to the list in Colossians, it's obvious that Paul wrote both of these letters, and then he sent them at the same time. I want you to see that, Phile uh, secondly, I want you to see, if you go back to verse 1, that Philemon's house was the likely place that the Colossian church 
had their weekly gatherings. I'll start now from verse 1. Paul writes, Paul, prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our feather soldier. <coughs> oh, excuse me. So sorry. <coughs> to Philemon. I'll, go, I'll start back there. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So it appears the church in Colossae is meeting in the house of Philemon. So they have two letters that go out, one for the church in Colossae, one for this individual Philemon, and Tychicus and Onesimus are going to be the ones who carry the letters. Now, if you recall, Onesimus was a runaway slave who was owned by Philemon who bumped into Paul in Rome. Look at, look at verse 10. Paul is talking to the slave owner Philemon. He says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Apparently, Onesimus was Philemon's slave. He'd run away and was in Rome. And after hearing Paul preach, he heard the good news about Jesus Christ saving him, not from his earthly being a, being a slave, but he was saved from the bonds of sin and judgment and the wrath of God that was against him. And, and when he heard the good news about salvation in Christ, he repented of his sin and he saved. Salvation in Christ is freedom from sin, freedom from guilt, freedom from the wrath of God, and the promise of eternity, the promise of the resurrection, the promise of being with the Lord Jesus forever and ever in a new body that's imperishable, where there's no more pain and no more sin and no more sorrow and no more death and no more tears. And the simple fact that Onesimus is now in Christ meant that from Paul's vantage point, he, Onesimus, was a beloved brother. And he obviously served Paul for some time because Paul gives him the title faithful as well. And now surely, as Paul, Paul's reintroduction of Onesimus back to the Colossian church was going to be a blessing to them. He's sending him back to his master, and he'd be traveling with Tychicus, carrying again these letters of Colossians and Philemon. Since he was a slave in Philemon's household, it's more than likely that he was on duty on Sundays when the church would meet. He wasn't a Christian, but he was on duty because the church was in Philemon's house. He wasn't a true believer, though, until he went to Rome. So we know that he was connected to the church at Colossae because he says he's one of you. But at the time, he was there. He's not a believer, but now he's going back as a believer. Look at the transformation in verse 16. Paul sends him back, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, a as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. I mean, this statement is putting the slave, over slave owner Philemon and the slave Onesimus and the apostle Paul, this is putting all of them on equal footing. All brothers in Christ, only in Christ can individuals 
from the higher rungs of the social ladder, like Philemon, who owned slaves and had a house large enough to have a church inside the house, only in Christ can Philemon be a beloved brother to one of his slaves. And only in Christ can Paul become a beloved brother to a slave like Onesimus and a slave owner like Philemon. And the whole point is, there's oneness at the cross. There's unity at the cross. There's peace with God and peace with man at the cross. Because Christ changes everything. He unifies those with differing gifts, and he unifies those who have different stations in life. Only in Christ can a runaway slave be considered a brother. Neither Paul or Philemon have anything in common with Onesimus. I mean, Paul's Jewish. He's educated. He's a former Pharisee. He's an apostle. He's a church planter. Philemon is wealthy, well-known, owns slaves. Onesimus is not Jewish. He's a Gentile. He's a slave, a runaway slave at that. And Paul can claim all three are brothers simply because they've been redeemed by Christ, they've been forgiven by Christ, and they serve the Lord Jesus as their master. So becoming a Christian brings you into a new family, and you're welcomed as brothers into the beloved, which means there's no room for snobbishness in the church, is there? There's no room for cliques in the church. There's no room for looking down on anyone in the church. We don't measure people based on their social status or their education or where they live or where they work or where they're from. We're all lost and now we're found. We are all in Christ and now we're brothers and sisters belonging to a new family and the mention of Onesimus in this final greeting surely makes that clear. I think this is a reminder for some of us to go beyond our church social circles and get to know others who you normally don't have normal relationships with. Let, let me just encourage all of you to look around the room. Spin your head around like a deer does. You guys all hunt. Look at, you know how the deer can look at all 360 degrees? Look around the room. Just take a moment and, and look at each other. We're a small church. Who have you not had over for dinner in the last year or two? We had COVID for a year and a half, so let's, barring COVID, who have you not had over in the last two years, say? Who have you not had a healthy Christian conversation with and gotten to know because they're brothers and sisters in Christ? Some of us think that family is only those who are our blood, we have blood relation to, and yet family are those who are blood bought by Christ. So take the initiative to get to know the rest of your family. Take the initiative to get to know the family you're going to spend eternity with. I hope all of us take advantage of our summer gatherings this year to interact with people that we don't know very well. And when you're there, take the initiative to sit by someone and talk to someone that you don't regularly talk to. When my wife and I were in Florida pastoring, my son and daughter-in-law worked alongside us, 
and they lived 15 minutes away, and Zach worked for me, and we had a really good relationship. We had to fight not talking to each other on Sundays because I'd see him during the week. We talk on the phone during the week. So why would I have to talk to him on Sundays? I'll see him Monday, I'll probably see him Wednesday, and I'll talk to him on Thursday. And so we had to discipline ourselves to move around some and meet other believers in the body of Christ, our other brothers and sisters who are blood-bought, so that the the family can grow. And I think all of us can use a little bit of that. Because fellowship between believers with different backgrounds, like Paul and Philemon and Onesimus, should be part of normal church life as well. And finally notice that the body of Christ unifies those of different ethnicities. We're all aware of the racial divide in our land. It certainly isn't today only, it's throughout history. And it's not just in the United States, it's around the globe. In Africa, there's tribal feuds. There's issues in India and Pakistan and China and Japan and Europe. In every nation, every facet of society, not just in the 21st century, but for all of history, racial tension, racism, and hatred and strife are part of humanity and have been there since the Garden of Eden. The very fact that Paul mentions in verse 10 and 11 that the three men, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, who's called Justice, are the only men of the circumcision means that everyone else listed is not of the circumcision. Of course, Paul's identifying these three men as Jewish. Remember, they're in Rome. And the vast majority of people that they associated with there are Gentiles. They're not Jews. But in Christ, ethnicity is irrelevant. Paul mentions of these three Jews, places them in the minority in Rome. And Paul, who's also a Jew, is fellowshipping with Jews and Gentiles alike. Because when Christ changes you from the inside out, According to Ephesians 2, he breaks down the barrier of the dividing wall between all races, all ethnicities, all people groups. So not only is there not to be a snobbishness toward those with different social status, there's to be no divisions because of different ethnic backgrounds. With all the talk of racial reconciliation, the only thing that will ever bring all groups into one is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul's living the life of a Pharisee, he had no relationship at all with anyone outside his Jewish heritage. And what the Jews missed for centuries was the Messiah had come for everyone, not just Jews. The covenant God made with Abraham was that In Abraham's seed, in Christ, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And we see this in the text by the simple mention of the very few Jews who are with Paul, ministering to him in Rome. But like all of us, there's more to these men than their ethnicity. Their ethnicity doesn't define them. What defines them is the end of verse 11. They are fellow workers with Paul, And they've been a comfort to him. Aristarchus, in verse 10, is mentioned as a fellow prisoner. It's hard to prove this emphatically because he's not mentioned very many times in Scripture. But it doesn't look like that Aristarchus was actually arrested. We know in Acts 19 that Aristarchus and Gaius were dragged into the amphitheater during a riot in Ephesus. But there's really no record of his arrest in Acts. And many have written 
that he willingly went to Rome with Paul to be an encouragement to him while Paul was in prison, even though he was not under arrest. The, the prisons in this day, from our vantage point today, were, are unimaginable. There's no prisoner rights. They really didn't care if the prisoner lived or died. Prison in the first century was not meant for long-term care. It was a holding tank for, for execution and trial, basically. Overcrowding was common. So was darkness and filth and stench and disease and dehydration, malnutrition, exposure from cold, no bedding, lack of clothes, infection from wounds. Beatings were commonplace, and they were never cleaned properly. The prisoner was never tended to by the state. The prisoner had to be tended to by friends and family. And it could be that Aristarchus served Paul while he was in prison simply to be his companion, to be his comrade, to bring food and supplies to sustain him. He may have been someone who Paul could be with and to pray with and to weep with and to comfort as well while Paul awaited trial. It appears that he was there voluntarily, yet some traditions report that this, this man was martyred under Nero's reign in A.D. 60. However you want to view him, we, we can say with relative clarity that he gave up his life for the sake of the gospel. He gave up his life to serve and be with the Apostle Paul while Paul was under some of the most adverse circumstances in his life. He's another behind-the-scenes servant that apart from his name being here, we would never know that he even existed. Now, the person that's called Jesus or Justice is just mentioned here. That's all we know about him, so we'll leave it at that. And then in verse 10, Paul mentions Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And Paul seems to communicate there's already been given some instructions about him that if Mark comes and Paul's not there, he encouraged the Colossians to welcome him. But there's obviously, there's a story behind that that scripture is silent to. But we do have a lot of details about Paul and Mark and Barnabas in the book of Acts. And it's worth noting as we close, if you turn to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. Paul Barnabas and Mark. I'm going to read from verse 25. Uh, the Mark that we're going to be reading about is the Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Uh, early in chapter 12, it's obvious that he was from a believing family uh, because if you read the whole chapter, you know there's a prayer meeting going on in his mom's house uh, as they prayed for Peter's release from prison. Notice Acts 12, verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Again, same person. This is the gospel, the writer of the gospel of Mark. Mark's the young intern. He's uh, working alongside Paul and Barnabas. Uh, and don't forget that we're told in Colossians that Barnabas and Mark are cousins. In the beginning of chapter 13, the church at Antioch sets Paul and Barnabas aside to go on the very first official missionary journey. And notice that Mark, or John Mark, is with them, beginning in chapter 13, verse 4. 13, verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, 
They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John, or John Mark, to assist them. All the names, all the names for here, whether John or John Mark is the same. Um, and John was there to assist them, to do whatever it is Paul and Barnabas need as a young intern, as a young helper, in order to continue the work of the ministry. Now jump down to verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now we don't know why. We don't know if there was adversity that he feared. We don't know if he was homesick. We don't know if he was ill. We don't know if the traveling got to him. We really don't know anything about why he left. We only know that Paul and Barnabas expected him to assist them, and then Mark left. Uh, they expected reliability. They expected all hands to be on deck. And in those situations, having everybody available is absolutely crucial. And there's no doubt this put them in a bind, but they pressed on without them. Now fast forward to Acts 15. Fast forward to Acts 15. From 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas went on their missionary journey. It's now complete. If you read 13 and 14, you can read about all the details of their trip. They traveled through many places. The gospel was proclaimed. Churches were planted. And now they're home. And, and at this point, by Acts 15, they're, they're getting ready to start another missionary journey after they get some rest. Acts 15, verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city we, where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Which is exactly what missionaries should do. You can't just go out there and plant churches and never return. Uh, again, in this time period, they couldn't shoot them an email or a text to find out how they're doing. There are no phone calls. They're really in the dark, and now they want to go back and continue to be an encouragement to the places they've, they've already been. And Paul and Barnabas, they want to go back and meet these believers and see what's going on in the work that already been started. Now look at verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Clearly, Mark leaving the previous missionary trip when they needed him has caused Paul to think of having him come again is a bad idea. Barnabas, who we know now is Mark's cousin, wants to bring him. Verse 39, Luke spares no details. He just writes it clearly. Verse 39. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed. Having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, he went through, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Mark is at the front and center of the conflict. And the sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, a disagreement that was so sharp that they couldn't resolve it. And yet, they both go on their way, continue to preach, continue to proclaim, Barnabas with Mark, and Paul 
with Silas. Now, the writing of the book of Colossians is about 10 years after they parted ways. Scripture is silent of when Paul and Barnabas reconciled. But Paul mentions Barnabas in a positive light in 1 Corinthians 9. Scripture is equally silent over when Paul began to trust Mark and consider him a fellow worker again. But with the mention of Mark here by name, as one who is with Paul in prison, this young man must have worked hard to rebuild and regain the trust of the Apostle Paul to the point that they're not, they're not just together, they're in a Roman prison together, and Paul is encouraging these Colossians to accept Mark, and Mark is actually sending his own greetings to the church in Colossae. The final mention of Mark, I won't have you, have you turn there, is in the last book Paul wrote to his beloved comrade in the faith, Timothy. During the closing verses of 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul's in prison again, and he writes this. Luke alone is with me. And he tells Timothy, get Mark, bring him to me, for he's very useful to me for ministry. The fact that Scripture is so honest about a sharp disagreement between two godly servants of the Lord Jesus Christ is just a reminder that we all have feet of clay. Now, some would argue for that, that the, because the rest of the book of Acts followed Paul's ministry, that he was right and Barnabas was wrong. You could, if you wanted to, add the family dynamic, the family ties that maybe being cousins causes you to wonder whether or not that, that Barnabas was choosing Mark to play favoritism. But the fact that Barnabas continues to labor faithfully and Mark labeled, labored faithfully seems to indicate that God sovereignly works even in our own sin, even with our own strife, even in our own, our own fashion. They should have worked it out before the Lord, but they weren't able to. It took time, didn't it? Years later, we find the things that Paul said, both about Barnabas and about Mark. And the whole point is, thankfully, because we're sinners, God uses sinners for his glory. And over time, Mark's been faithful. And Paul takes note. And here he is serving Paul. He's with Paul. And while Paul is in prison for the sake of the gospel, what a wonderful story about restoration of believers and the restoration of someone in the ministry who failed early on. His failure wasn't moral. His failure was not doctrinal. If it were, there would be a different result, I think. Those failures have different considerations for future ministry, especially pastoral. It doesn't mean you can't be forgiven. It doesn't mean you can't be restored. It doesn't mean you can't be useful. But that's not what we're talking about in regards to Mark. He just went home, and we don't know why. And then he remained faithful over time. Trust is rebuilt to the point where Paul is expressing great need for Mark at the end of his life, reminding us that early failure is not a death sentence to later ministry. We can be encouraged by that. Those who have seemingly failed, that God is not finished, and those of you who may have been affected by the failures of others, sometimes you need to graciously give people a second chance because God certainly has given us second chances as well, hasn't he? 
And then notice that Paul states that these three fellow workers in particular of the kingdom of God have been a comfort to him. Aristarchus seemingly had given up everything to come minister to Paul. Jesus called Justice a one-time named person in Scripture. And then John Mark, the defector, the, the one who left, the one who couldn't hang, the one who deserted, the one who left, John Mark, you three guys are a tremendous comfort to me. Well, why did Paul need comfort? Well, he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about himself, but that little phrase, have been a comfort to me, surely indicates that even Paul was overwhelmed by his circumstances. Even Paul went through bouts of loneliness and depression and fear and anxiety and questions. Paul, though he knew he's in the center of where God wanted him to be, needed comfort because the prison conditions were awful. He's confined, he's chained to a Roman guard. Little to no food or water unless someone brings it to him. He's a real person with real needs, having a small band of comforting believers to give him the strength to press on. It's a tremendous encouragement to him. Beloved, we were not meant to live the Christian life alone. We're not meant to go through difficulty alone. Unfortunately, most of us do. Some of us go through it alone because we don't let anyone know us. Some of us go through it alone because we don't let anyone bear our burdens. Some of us are so triumphalistic that Paul needing comfort's a problem for you because he obviously wasn't trusting God. It's just not true. I could point out a number of passages where Paul is discouraged and down and needs to be built up by others. And we know this because Paul is open about his difficulties. Beloved, take the initiative to share with someone. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. There's also those in the body of Christ who go through difficulty alone, even though they do share their struggles, because the vast majority of believers are out of touch with other brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't know how to sit. We don't know how to listen. And we don't know how to comfort it seems the very presence of these men, just knowing his difficulty and being physically present was what Paul needed for the greatest comfort. Beloved, life is hard. We live in a sin-cursed world. And for us to bear each other's burdens and to be a comfort to one another, some of us need to share and some of us need to be aware. Because no one is immune to difficulty. I, I think in conclusion, Paul didn't only spend time with those who were up front. Paul would have never been a celebrity pastor. Aristarchus, the non-preacher, the non-celebrity who, who, who carried his letters, he's a beloved brother and faithful worker in the Lord. Onesimus, a runaway slave, he's a faithful beloved brother as well. These aren't podium people. These are dear saints who Paul loved and cared for. And he obviously didn't hold a grudge against John Mark for making his life more difficult on that first missionary journey. Time 
and probably conversation healed the division, and Paul is given great comfort now from one who previously brought him pain. There's so many things that we can leave with this morning, but most importantly, let me just say that God is in the process of bringing a great company of people together from every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every people group, every part of social society, people with different gifts, callings, and personalities into his kingdom for his glory through his son. To him be the glory, honor, praise, and adoration as he continues to build his church through sinners like us. Amen.